We're continuing with our study through the life of Jesus so that we can understand for ourselves who the biggest figure in all of history really was. It's our desire to know him for ourselves and to understand for ourselves everything we believe about him. So it's not just hearsay or urban legends or myths, but we can really understand it for ourselves. So at this stage in the life of Jesus, he's begun his ministry. He's about 30 years old, and he's settled in a town called Capernaum, which is in northern Israel in the region known as Galilee, which has the Sea of Galilee, a really large lake uh, very, very close to it. It's actually the lowest lying uh, body of fresh water in the world. It's almost 700 feet below sea level. And that's the Sea of Galilee, which is the coastal area of this northern region of Israel. So Jesus is stationed there, and Capernaum is sort of the central hub of this region. He goes out from there for various excursions and short trips to different towns and villages around to teach, do miracles, and all kinds of things like that, speak in their synagogue. And so that's where we pick up our story today. Last week, we saw him making an excursion to his hometown in Nazareth, which resulted in the townsmen trying to throw him off a cliff. If you missed that teaching, you can listen to it on our website. And it's those who know the social rules of etiquette, when someone tries to throw you off a cliff, it's usually time to leave the party. And so that's about where we pick up our study today in Matthew chapter 4. It's going to begin in verse 13. Matthew 4, verse 13, it says this, And leaving Nazareth, good decision, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are just tribal references to this region where some of the original tribes who lived there had names similar to that, were named that, and so it's just a reference to this region of Galilee. Continuing in verse 14, it says, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Isaiah, as many of you know, is an Old Testament prophet, lives hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. But Jesus, please remember, is constantly throughout his life and ministry fulfilling prophecies that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. He's fulfilling them by the way he lives out his life. The very first message we did in this series detailed some of the three hundred prophecies that relate to the life of Jesus. And we go through his life, we'll find that it is mathematically impossible for anybody to perpetuate a fraud around that many prophecies. It's very hard to create a fraud around where you're born. You don't have a lot of control over that. So if you want to check out the first teaching uh, in this series, we, we go through a whole bunch of prophecies about Jesus. And this is just one more example of Jesus fulfilling a prophecy by being in the region of Galilee and being based there. Verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the defining moment when Jesus launches his public ministry. Jesus has sort of guest spoken in several synagogues. He's done some miracles in small settings. He's had some one-on-one conversations with people. But he is now beginning his public ministry. He has his own message that he is going out in public outside of the synagogue and teaching. This is the beginning of his public message. And you'll notice that Jesus is preaching the same message that John the Baptist actually taught, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And this message that Jesus is preaching is going to embody his whole ministry. When his earthly ministry is done, he's going to tell his disciples to preach repentance as well before he leaves. He's going to charge them to preach that. And if you've forgotten about it, to to repent simply means to change your mind. To change your mind. In this case, Jesus is saying you need to change your mind about who I am. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. You need to change your mind about needing a Savior. You need a Savior. You need to change your mind, some of us, about God existing. I'm here. I love you. That whole idea of repentance is God saying you need to change your mind in some major areas. And so this is the message that Jesus preaches is repent. Change your mind. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached. And when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying that the kingdom of heaven is right in front of him. He's saying, it's me. I'm, I'm the kingdom of heaven. I'm here. I'm God. I'm the new covenant. I'm grace. I am the new way of living. I'm everlasting, eternal life. I'm right here. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. That's what he's telling them. Let's continue in verse 18. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. You might remember that Jesus has actually already encountered Simon Peter and Andrew before. You might remember he met them in this region called Bethabara, which is where John the Baptist was baptizing. And Andrew, possibly Simon Peter too, was a disciple of John the Baptist. Jesus meets them, and John basically tells them, like, you you should just be following Jesus. This is the guy. They go and they follow Jesus. This wasn't Jesus formally calling them to be his disciples. This was Jesus saying, yes, I'm the one John's talking about. Come and hang out with me for a while. And so they did that. They went on some trips with Jesus, saw some miracles, heard a few teachings from him, individual conversations. And then at some point, they went back to Capernaum. They went back to their hometown, went back to fishing in the family trade, probably at the same time that John the Baptist is arrested and and Jesus sort of hightails it out of the southern part of Israel. They probably go back and go back to fishing. So Jesus is coming across them for the second time now, and they're working in their father's boats. At this point, we need to take a, a, a major sort of detour in our story uh, so that we can understand why what happens next is so extraordinary. And I'm really excited to teach this because when I heard this taught for the first time, it completely changed the way I viewed Jesus and the disciples and their interactions forever. And this is going to change the way that you view a lot of who Jesus and the disciples were as you read the gospel. It's going to be a great, great study today. And so we're going to take a look at the rabbinical system. How did someone become a rabbi? Because we know at this point, Jesus is guest teaching in different synagogues because he's recognized as a rabbi. Pretty much everybody accepts this is a rabbi, a Jewish religious teacher. There's really no question about that. Everyone accepts him as that. And so we're going to take a look at what that process entailed. How did Jesus get there? Because most Bible scholars hold that Jesus actually went all the way through the entire rabbinical training system. He was a legitimate rabbi. So Galilee, where Jesus is raised and does most of his ministry, is an ultra-Orthodox part of Israel. It's the conservative part of Israel. It's not close to any really big cities. It's a decent distance from Jerusalem. And, and you know, it's the same is true today. The further you get from large cities, generally the more conservative values become in a culture. So this is a very conservative, very traditional part of Israel. Lots of small families. And everything revolved around the Torah. 
The Torah is simply the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also called the Pentateuch. It's just the Greek term for Torah. So this was the book of the law. It was called the law. And in these five books was contained everything they believed God wanted them to know about how they should live. And so everything in their lives revolved around Torah. Everything. They spoke about it every day. They spoke about it in their homes. It was central to their life. And because it was so important, they quickly began to ask the question, at what age should we start teaching this to our sons? When should we start teaching Torah to our sons? So their sons would hear it every day in their homes, but at the age of five, Jewish boys would begin their formal education, and this is the first fill-in on your outline, with Beth's affair, Beth's affair which they attended from the ages of 5 to 12. And they would be a, a local synagogue pretty much in every village. And every synagogue would employ a Torah teacher, not necessarily a rabbi, but somebody who could just teach Torah. This is going to blow your mind. The goal was very simple. Memorize the entire Torah by the age of 10. All of it. I mean, if you open your Bibles and go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, put your finger where Deuteronomy is. Look how much is there. And they would memorize all of it. All of it, to the point where they could, you could say, you know, uh, what does it say again in Deuteronomy about goats? And, and they'd be able to, to know it. That's all they did from the ages of 5 to 12 was memorize the Torah. So pretty much every single Jewish male had the Torah memorized. So when they talk about it, they know what's going on. And that's why you see throughout the Gospels, Jesus saying, you know, you've heard it said such and such. And you get the vibe when you read the story that, that we're like, uh, no, I haven't heard it said that because it's, it's in the Torah. But everyone else is going, oh, yeah, totally. Because they all knew it. They all had it memorized. They're like, of course. And so they, they didn't even have chapters or verses at this point. They just had scrolls. It was just one running body of text in each book. And they memorized the whole thing, every single Jewish male. So notice this verse. Uh, it's on your outline. It's in, from Psalm 19. It says, the law or Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. They believed this was the key to life, so they would do things like when all the little Jewish boys came on the first day of Beth's affair, they would put a drop of honey on their tongue and say, may Torah be sweeter to you than honey and the honeycomb. Because they valued it so much. They believed it was the key to everything. And so the goal of every Jewish boy and their parents' dream for them was to become a rabbi. Was to become a rabbi. I, I guess the closest... A comparative social value we have in Canada would be playing in the NHL, you know? But this is the dream of every parent. This is the dream of, of every boy was to become a rabbi. And so because Torah was central to their lives, rabbis, the highest level of religious knowledge in the area, rabbis were the most esteemed members of society in the region of Galilee and most of Israel at the time. And a, a good analogy would really be any sport to compare to the rabbinical training system. The idea is many of us play a sport, let's say, say soccer at the elementary level. When you go into middle school, fewer kids play it. You go to high school, fewer kids play it. You go to college, fewer kids. And by the time you get to the pros, there's only a few. And that's sort of how the rabbinical system worked. You had these different levels, and at each level, a large percentage of the people would drop out simply because they didn't have the giftedness and the ability and the talent 
to go to the next level. So this first level was Beth Sefer, and when you turn 12, you would be finished with that. And if your teacher believed in you, you'd go on to the next level. He'd clear you for the next level. If your teacher said, uh, listen, this kid's not going to be a rabbi. We all know it. He's continually punching other kids in the face. Y- you know, they'd say, Beth's affair is good for you. It's good for you. What they would do is they would go back to their family and they would generally take up the family trade, whether it be craftsmanship or woodwork or building, whatever it might be. They would go and take up the family trade if the rabbi, if the teacher didn't clear them to move on from Beth's affair. But if you were cleared, you were one of the best of the best and you'd go on to Beth Midrash. Beth Midrash, from the ages of 12 to 15. And there, you want to talk about a jump in ability here, get this. In just three years, from 12 to 15, you would memorize the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. It's like that much of most of your Bibles. You memorize it all. all. Not just the law, not just Torah, but all of the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament. You would memorize the whole thing. And typically, if you were good enough to make it to this level... You would actually have it all memorized by the time you were 13. Just a year. Memorize the entire Old Testament. And so at at this level, you'd not only memorize the Old Testament, but you'd also learn what's known as the Jewish art of questions. And, And in our culture, we really prize the ability to take in facts and then spit them out at the appropriate time. In their culture, what they really valued was the ability to to take in a question, take in a topic, chew on it. And then sort of turn it around, bring it back, and take the discussion to the next level. Sort of one of of those questions or contributions to a conversation that just takes things to a whole nother level. Something much more profound, something much more meaningful. That's what they valued more than anything. Some of you will remember that uh, the time that Jesus is separated from his parents. He's with his family. He's a young teenager. They're in Jerusalem for one of the major feasts, and they end up accidentally leaving Jesus in Jerusalem. After three days, they're finally able to track him down. They find him surrounded by rabbis, and the account in the scripture says they were amazed by the questions Jesus was asking and the answers he was giving. Because Jesus was a master already as a young teenager at the art of Jewish questions. He was discussing things with these rabbis. And every contribution that he makes to the conversation is taking the discussion to another level. And they're just amazed at the wisdom that's in Jesus. So he had clearly moved on from Beth Sefer on to Beth Midrash. And you see this from Jesus throughout the Gospels. He'd be asked a question and many times he would answer the question with a question that would just take things to a whole nother level. And so at the Beth Midrash stage of your education, you'd memorize as well, in addition to the whole Old Testament, you would memorize each rabbi's interpretation of Torah so that you could compare and contrast them. So each rabbi who's around there would be teaching his own sort of angle on it and you would find out what all of them are and you'd memorize all of them so that you could compare them. And have discussions, you know, what does Rabbi Goldstein say about this? Well, Rabbi Miskowitz says this, and Rabbi Goldstein says this. And and you would know every theological position of pretty much every rabbi in your area, and you'd know the entire Old Testament. It's not surprising that even during this stage, a lot of students would drop out. They just couldn't hang, just couldn't keep up, and they would be dropping like flies. And if your goal was to go pro, in other words, to become a rabbi, and you made it through Beth Midrash, you would be 15, and your next step would be to become a Beth Talmud. Beth Talmud, 
which basically means disciple. And this would last from ages 15 through 30. And your goal was to find a rabbi who would accept you as their Talmudim, their disciple. And here's how it worked. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, rabbis had different interpretations of Torah, different ways that they believed it should be applied to one's life. So you would go and interview all the rabbis you could find to get as much clarity as possible on what their position was, what their interpretation was. And typically it would go something like this. Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And all rabbis really agree that the greatest commandment is what's known as the Shema. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy in your Bibles. And it's what the whole congregation would say together at the beginning of every synagogue meeting they had. And so the rabbi would say the greatest commandment is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And where the difference between rabbis would become clear is how they defined the second most important commandment. So one rabbi would say, and the second most important commandment is keep the Sabbath. And another would say, the second most important important commandment is to honor your mother and father, and so forth. And they would have different opinions about the second most important commandment. And a rabbi's interpretation of Torah was known as their yoke. It was known as their yoke, Y-O-K-E. And so you'd be trying to discern what is this rabbi's yoke what is his interpretation of torah and the idea is you'd find a rabbi whose yoke resonated with you you felt like yes i I agree with this i believe the same thing i want to apply this to my life this is what i desire to teach one day is this rabbi's yoke you try and find a rabbi with a yoke that you wanted to take upon yourself and it was only about once every hundred years that a rabbi would actually come along with a new yoke Almost every rabbi at the time was simply teaching the yoke of the rabbi that preceded them and the rabbi who preceded them. They were continuing that tradition on. And so it was a radical thing when a rabbi came along who actually had a completely new yoke that nobody had ever had before. And this is one of the reasons Jesus' teachings were perceived as being so radical. You see, instead of teaching a yoke that was very exclusive, This was a a society where if you were a rabbi, you would be esteemed if your yoke was extremely difficult. You know, this is my yoke. And it would be something lofty, very high, very hard to live up to. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus' pitch is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Completely different, completely radical, completely countercultural in that context. And so to teach a new yoke you needed to have authority. To be a rabbi who taught, you needed to have authority. And the Hebrew word is shmika. The word is shmika. And in the rabbinical system, you needed to be endorsed by two other sources that had shmika. It's not a fungus. It's the Hebrew word for authority. You You needed to have two sources that had shmika look upon you and say, I endorse this guy. He has shmika. He has what it takes. He's the real deal. So who were Jesus' two sources? Well, the first one I'd suggest to you was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, everybody at the time, even though they didn't understand, recognized this guy has shmika. He's got it. They even said that John the Baptist had the same kind of authority that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, had. They said he's got the same spirit as Elijah. He's speaking with the authority of Elijah. He had Shmika. Jesus would say that John the Baptist was the greatest man other than himself who ever lived. 
So you have John the Baptist, and you can read the reference on your own time at home. It's on your outline. John said this. He said, it's he, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And then for a second endorsement, I'd love to have this on my resume. How about God the Father? God the Father. So Jesus goes to get baptized by John the Baptist, and it says in the Bible, then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's a good reference. It's a pretty good endorsement. So Jesus is endorsed by John the Baptist and God the Father himself. I think that covers him. And that's why it says in Matthew in the Bible, it says of Jesus, he taught them as one having authority. That word is shmika, and not as the scribes. Jesus taught with authority. Whereas most rabbis would say, thing like, say things like, you've heard it said, keep the Sabbath. But Rabbi Weinstein says, and they would be quoting another rabbi, Jesus said things like, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus spoke with his own authority. He said, I say to you, this is what I'm saying to you, because he had that authority. And so when you found the rabbi whose yoke you desired to take upon yourself, you would ask to become their Talmudim, their their disciple. And the rabbi would audition you by quizzing you on Torah, and then on the Old Testament, and then on the positions of other rabbis and their yokes, each question getting more difficult than the last. So he might just start out with something easy because he's gracious and say, you know, the book of Deuteronomy contains seven references to the Messiah. Name them. And you would spit them out on command. And then he might say, you know, what does uh, Rabbi Goldberg say is the meaning of Isaiah 53? And what do you say is the meaning of Isaiah 53? Where do you think it relates to the writings of the prophet Jeremiah? And they would go on and each question would get progressively more difficult and challenging. And possibly at the end of that, he would accept you as his Talmudim. The reason the rabbi was so intense about who he poured into was because he understood he had a very limited time on this earth. He had a limited amount of time to invest in people who would continue to teach his yoke when he was gone. And he did not want to waste a second with anybody who couldn't hang, who wouldn't come through, who couldn't do what he did. And so the question the rabbi would ultimately be asking himself was, Can this Talmudim do what I do? Can I see the day coming in the future when he can do what I do? The question is not, can he know what I know? The question was, can he do what I do? And so if the rabbi thought you could do it, he would simply say this phrase. He would say, hmm, follow me. And you would drop everything to follow that rabbi because this was the rabbi saying, I think you can go pro. And in the limited time I have on this earth, I want to pour that into you. Follow me. It would be one of the greatest days of your life. And from that moment forward, you'd want to be as close to your rabbi as possible at all times. It's an all-out commitment. You just want to be with him all the time because you never know when he's going to drop some amazing nugget of wisdom that could change the world. You want to be with him all the time. And if you couldn't find a rabbi who would take you on as his Talmudim, your time in the system would probably end with the rabbi saying something like, "Uh, my son, go home. 
Honor the Lord in your work. Work hard. Marry a good Jewish girl. Have lots of children. And maybe one day, one of your sons will be a rabbi. And that would be the end for you. So back to our story. When, when Jesus finds Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they're working in their father's fishing business. They're not rabbis. And, and they're clearly done with the rabbinical training system. And we're going to meet two other brothers in one minute, James and John. All of them except Simon Peter are teenagers at this time. Uh, We know this because later on there's an interaction between Jesus and his disciples and some other people asking why why Jesus and Simon Peter are not paying the temple tax. And so they go and they pay the temple tax. And this was a tax that only had to be paid by people who were 20 years old or older. And only Jesus and Simon Peter have to pay it. So all of the other disciples that are with them are all teenagers. They're all under 20. They're in puberty and clumsy and awkward and all of that stuff. And they all would have dreamed of becoming rabbis. Their families would have dreamed of their boys becoming rabbis. But the reality is they couldn't hang with the best of the best of the best. And so they're back working in the family trade because they just couldn't keep up. You know, over the years, we're going to learn that Peter is a massive screw-up repeatedly. James and John are going to be nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, which is just the greatest nickname ever. Sons of Thunder by Jesus. That's what Jesus is going to nickname them. And you're going to get the vibe that these guys are just heart on their sleeve, guys. They're passionate. They're intense. They speak their mind. They're fishermen. They're rough and tumble, guys. Not rabbi material. Not rabbi material, you know. Not really likely to take a discussion to the next level. More likely to punch you in the face, you know, as a rhetorical comeback to your point. I hear what you're saying, but (laughs) that's my counter. That's the sort of guys these were. None of them are really rabbi material. So now, with all of that context, with all of that context, imagine Simon, Peter, and Andrew working in their boats on their nets. Now imagine Jesus, the rabbi, with a reputation for working miracles. The rabbi with a reputation for teaching a radical new yoke. That Jesus, walking up to them, verse 19, Then he said to them, follow me, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. This is a a formal invitation to become a disciple, a Talmudim of Jesus the rabbi. This is Jesus walking up to them and saying, I believe that one day you can do what I do. This is Jesus saying, I want to entrust my yoke, my ministry to you, to you. It's Jesus saying, I believe in you. I believe you have what it takes. I believe you can do it. When you understand what it is that's just actually happened, their reaction is completely logical. The next verse says, they immediately left their nets and followed him and followed him. And when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men, they, they, they had no idea what he meant. But we know now that he was choosing them for the purpose of evangelism. He was going to leave his entire ministry in their hands. When he left the earth, they would spread his message around the world and and they would start the first church, the early church. What's so amazing is that this was a system where a, a rabbi couldn't have a plan B. The rabbi's entire plan was his Talmudim, his disciples. 
And Jesus honored that exact plan. Jesus didn't say, hey guys, I'm entrusting you with my message. If you really screw it up, I'll come back. I'll, I'll clean it up. I'll come back one more time and fix it and I'll come back with a better plan. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you with my word and with the Holy Spirit. That's all you need. I believe you can do it. And he's saying it to these guys that are not rabbi material. He's saying this to guys who've been told they were not good enough to be religious teachers, to be religious scholars. They were not good enough to do ministry. And Jesus says to them, follow me. No plan B. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. There's actually a good chance that that James and John are cousins of Jesus. And you're going to find as you read the Bible, there's several men in the New Testament named James. But you can always tell when it's James the disciple, the son of Zebedee, because he's never mentioned in Scripture apart from his brother John. They're always together. That's how you know who he is. It says he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They understood the opportunity that was being offered to them. This this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. They left everything and followed Jesus. This this would really be like this would really be like you're you're playing hockey in your in your rec league, you know. And this guy with sunglasses on, pull down baseball hat and an overcoat comes in and just sort of sits in the top of the back row. He's watching you. He's watching you play. He's nodding his head. Mm. Goes on for 30 minutes. The game ends and, and you're having a drink and he comes down and he takes off his glasses. That's Gretzky. Gretzky says, you know, I've been watching you skate. And uh, I know you're 47, but I think you have what it takes. So what I want to do is uh, I want you to come with me. and I'm going to teach you everything I know because I think you can do what I can do. It's laughable, right? It's ludicrous. But that's sort of what is going on in this scenario. And what would you do? You would call somebody, but you would call them from the limo going wherever the heck Gretzky's going, right? You're like, this guy might be out of his mind, but it's going to be one heck of a ride, you know? Let's see where this goes. So they leave everything to follow Jesus. And then can, can you imagine Zebedee, their dad? He, you don't need to worry about him. And another account in Mark, it's going to say that he actually had hired servants working in his trade as well. So he, he has a profitable fishing business that's doing well. But can you imagine Zebedee going home after that interaction to his wife and saying, babe, the the most unbelievable thing just happened. The the boys aren't with me anymore. She'd be like, what do you you mean? He'd say, well, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, that rabbi who's been teaching with the new yoke and doing the miracles, he, he came and told the boys to follow him. He thinks, He thinks our boys have what it takes. Would have been an incredible conversation. You know, in his selection of the first four disciples, which we've just seen here, Jesus is demonstrating one of the great truths of the kingdom. It's this, that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. 
It doesn't matter whether you think you're good enough or not. It doesn't matter if you think you've gone too far away from God or messed up too many times to ever be used by him. Jesus looked at you and I and said, follow me. Follow me. Because Jesus believes in you. Because Jesus wants to invest in you. He knows that the same spirit that was in him and allowed him to do everything he did on the earth lives inside of you and I. That same Holy Spirit. And so Jesus knows. He's not speaking optimistically when he says, you can do what I do. He's saying, trust me, the same power source that was in me is in you. You can do what I do. At one point, Jesus will even tell his disciples, you'll do greater things than you've seen me do. What an amazing statement. You know, you and I are Talmudim of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. And we, we must be no less focused on him than any Talmudim would be on their rabbi. How much more focused should we be knowing that our rabbi is Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the son of God, the Messiah, everything. So write these down. Because Jesus is our rabbi, we must be with him in his word. We must be with him in his word. We must follow him even if we're not sure of the final destination. You're going to find that as the disciples follow Jesus around, they have no idea what's happening the next day, pretty much ever. Jesus just says, we're going to Samaria today. All right, what are we going to do there? Stuff, let's go. Go all over the place. No idea what's going on. And, and to follow your rabbi means you, you follow. There's no better illustration than follow. It's like playing follow the leader. If you're playing follow the leader and you're going the opposite direction, you are terrible at follow the leader, right? <laughs> Even children understand this. And, and the whole rabbinical system is built on one concept. It's follow the rabbi. Do what he does. Go where he goes. Be like him. And so we've got to be with him in his word. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you've probably discovered the truth that God will give you the destination. He'll let you know where you want to go, but he'll rarely tell you how you're going to get there. Because if he did, you probably wouldn't even begin the journey because you wouldn't think you could do it. You wouldn't think you could do it. But that's why they said, listen, you, you don't need to know the rabbi's plans even. You just need to follow the rabbi. He sets the agenda. Second thing is we need to live by his teaching. We need to live by his teaching. We need to know what his yoke is. We have to know those teachings well. He's entrusted them to us to entrust to others. And then finally, we need to imitate him whenever we can. We need to imitate him. You know what I know about Talmudim that were following a rabbi is they were simply trying to be like him. There was no Talmudim who's saying, you know, <laughs> I'm just biding time here until I can come up with my own much better, more awesome yoke, which is what I'm going to do as soon as I get endorsed as a rabbi. That's what I'm doing. That attitude did not exist in this system. I want to be like my rabbi. That's why he's my rabbi. I'm trying to be like him. In other words, everything becomes secondary in life to being like him. Everything in life becomes secondary to being like him. Uh, one of the lies we, we most easily buy into is that our rabbi's great agenda for us is 
to be happy. That's what he wants for you more than anything, to be happy. There was no rabbi who had that as their agenda. The agenda was, I want you to be like me. That's the agenda. God wants us to be blessed. He wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants all those good things for us. But above all those things, the Father wants us to be like Jesus. That is the goal. And so for all of us, we've been through things. You might be going through things right now, or you will go through things that don't feel like great blessings sometimes. And you're thinking, what is God doing? What is he doing? He's never punishing you. What God does is he uses the broken situations in our life to make us more like him to make us more like him. And so the Christian's attitude to strife and to hardship and to trouble is to pray to God for deliverance, for healing, for hope, but to also pray, God, through this, may I come out the other side more like you. May I be more like you through this. That's the heart of any Talmudim, the heart of any disciple. In future studies, we're going to find that Jesus doesn't only choose 12 disciples, but he really chooses 70. And out of those 70, he, clu- he chooses a closest 12. And he actually has three even closer within that 12. But one of the assignments Jesus gives to the 70 at one point in their development is he sends them out on an assignment in pairs. Go out. Preach my message to people. Preach repentance. If somebody needs healing, pray for them and heal them. If somebody has demons, cast them out. And so he sends them out to do this as like an assignment. And there's this incredible scenario that unfolds in the Gospel of Luke when it describes the moment when they come back. It says this in Luke 10. It says, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what's being described there is this moment of euphoria when Jesus' Talmudim, his disciples, realize we really can do what he can do. He wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't blowing smoke. He, he was for real when he said, you can do what I do. Just go do it. And they come back and, and they're overjoyed because they're saying, this is true. It's, a, it's actually true. We can really do it. And Jesus says, I, I told you. I told you you could do it. You know, after ministering one day, Jesus tells his disciples to sail across the Sea of Galilee. He says, guys, go to the other side. He says, I'll meet you on the other side. I'll meet you there. He's their rabbi, so they're like, all right, whatever. So they go off. And then in the middle of the night, I I love this story because we always rush past the first part of the story. You have to put yourself there. It's night, sailing across a lake. I don't know about you, but just the feeling of being in the middle of the lake at night in an unpowered boat with just a sail would be really creepy to me, really creepy. I'm always thinking worst-case scenarios like if something came up and ate this whole boat, nobody would ever find us. That's always what's going through my head. So they're out there, you know, and they look out, and Jesus is walking across the water. He's not like putting on a show. He's walking across the water because a straight line is the shortest distance between point A and point B. He's just like walking across the water. And uh, <laughs> the disciples don't have a discussion. 
Well, they do, but the discussion kind of goes like this. Ah! 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 That's pretty much all anybody says. Oh, my gosh. And then finally, finally, Peter, because he's a, a little bit older, he's not a teenager anymore, you know, speaks out above the girlish uh, pubescent screaming of the other disciples. And Peter actually calls out to Jesus. He calls out to Jesus. And he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Tell me to come to you if it's really you. So Jesus says, come over. Peter gets out of the boat. Peter walks on the water. He walks on the water. Then at a certain point, it occurs to him that he's walking on water. He freaks out. His faith disappears, <clears throat> and he plummets into the water. And always stay. Don't, don't, don't ever miss the fact. Don't ever read that story and go like, another screw-up for Peter. Last time I checked, you or I have never walked on water. So that's a pretty, pretty good thing that Peter accomplished. He still walked on water. He walked on water because he wanted to do what his rabbi was doing. That's why. That's what the rabbi is doing. And here we are sailing like a bunch of morons. We could have been walking this whole time. He wants to do what his rabbi does. That's what it means to follow. I need to be with my rabbi. So why does Jesus call Peter out the boat? Does Jesus call Peter out because he's like, this is, is going to be hilarious. Yes, get out the boat. <clears throat> get out the boat, Peter. Come and walk over to me. He doesn't, he doesn't do it because he wants Peter to drown or to prank him. He does it because he's saying, yeah, get out the boat. Because you can do what I do. If I'm doing it, then you can do it too. So come, come on over. Jesus would never have told Peter to take that step of faith if he didn't believe Peter could do it. He knew Peter could do it. And to every single one of us, Jesus has said, I chose you because I believe you can do what I do. I believe you can do it, even if you don't believe it yet. I believe it. In the Gospel of John, it says this. In the Bible, it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Maybe you've heard that verse and you've looked at it as some sort of God saying you, you, you. But when you understand the rabbinical system, you understand why you should feel incredibly special. That Jesus says, I chose you. I chose you. And so whoever you are, wherever you are in your life right now, wherever you've come from, whatever is in your past, Jesus qualified you the moment he said, follow me. He qualified you. He qualified you. You're pre-qualified, as any commercial would say, selling cars. Pre-qualified. That's what Jesus did. He pre-qualified you the moment he said, follow me. Follow me. But I don't think I can do what you do. The reality is, Jesus would say, you know, it's not really your call. It's not really your call. I made you. I created you. I put the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's my call. And if I say you can do what I do, you can do what I do. Because in that moment when Jesus said, follow me, Jesus was saying, I know what I put you on this earth to do. 
and I know for a fact you can do it. You've got what it takes. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And We're going to spend a few minutes in prayer. As I was preparing this, I just felt stirred to remind you today that the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and are called according to His purposes. There's no condemnation. And so if you felt not good enough, if you felt distanced from God because of your sin, because of choices you've made, I really believe Jesus wants you to know this morning you're not disqualified. You're not disqualified from His plan for your life. You're not disqualified from ministry, from being used by God. You're not disqualified from a meaningful relationship with God. You're not disqualified because here's the amazing thing about God. He he knew all that before you were even born. He knew your ugliest secrets long before He ever said to you, follow me. He knew it all. And He still said, follow me. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. If that's you today, then then in this coming worship time, you just need to share that with God. Share the things you're struggling to get over. Ask Him to forgive you, and I believe you're going to feel a release this morning, a freedom from having the Holy Spirit in you confirm that God loves you. He's with you. And then lastly, just as we get ready to pray, if you have no confidence today in your ability to be used by God to impact other people, I want to pray for you in a moment. And I'm going to guess that much of the reason for that is you simply don't feel qualified. To you, God says, I don't call the qualified, I qualify the called. Even the Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher (laughs) who pretty much ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, his testimony was, I didn't come to you with convincing words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And we're not useful to God because we're so awesome. We're useful to God because He put His Spirit in us, the same Spirit that powered the ministry and life of Jesus. God put that Spirit in us. And He qualified us. And He says, that's within you. You are capable of so much more than you've ever imagined. You have no idea the things that I'm going to use you to do. No idea. So I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray right now for anybody in the room who is just feeling a lack of confidence about being used by you to minister to others. Father, in faith, we want to thank you that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us. That we are perfectly equipped for any situation any circumstance because we have you in us, with us, 
every second, every moment, every day. And our ability to be used by you doesn't rest on our skill, but God, it rests on our faith in you. So our prayer today is that you would grow our faith, God. You would cause us to trust you more. To take risks on your behalf for the sake of your glory, God. To enter into conversations, to ask questions, but to have a confidence that as we step out the boat, you won't let us fall. You'll catch us. We can do what you did because we believe you, God. So I pray that faith and confidence would just rise up in the room this morning, God. 